you can communicate truth in so many ways. One of the most powerful ways is through stories. I think social media and TikTok and Twitter and YouTube have figured that out so wonderfully. They capture our imagination by brief snippets, stories capture our attention. But I think one of the ways in which I grieve over so many of the stories that are told, especially through the medium of social media, is that they are so empty and so brief and so detached from all of reality that we we live in a constant sense of we're suspended in a, in, in a cloud of media, but yet not grounded in a real and true story that's meaningful and significant. It has a way of detaching us from reality. But stories, they capture us. They do, don't they? We love a well-told story because it draws us in. Well, today we're going to see the true story of what God did in Ezra chapter 1. And it's an incredible story. Incredible because of what happens. Incredible because what happens is true. This is not just a story. This is real history. But then, Lord willing, you're going to see that this story isn't an isolated one on the feed to be watched for a moment and then passed by. This story is at one and the same time pointing us backward to all that God has done in the past and pointing forward to what God will do in the future. So the story that we're about to read and understand and behold is our story. This isn't just about God's people in the past. It's about God's people in the present. It's about the confidence God's people have in the future. This is about you. And so open up to Ezra chapter 1, and let's just pick up at the very beginning. Ezra chapter 1. If you're new to uh, flipping through the pages of the Bible, you are going to find that this is before Psalms and Proverbs. You're going to see Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. So it's before Psalms and Proverbs for big prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, right after Second Chronicles. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Some context for you. The date here is 
538 B.C. Now, one year prior to this, in 539, Cyrus of Persia defeated Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It was Nebuchadnezzar who, in 605, carried off the first wave of Israelites into exile. It was Nebuchadnezzar who, in 586, overtook Jerusalem. He, he burned down the temple. He took all of the treasure in there, took it back to Babylon. He took all the inhabitants back to Babylon, except the poorest of the poor. He took them all into captivity. That's 586. But Nebuchadnezzar now has been defeated by Cyrus. So there's this new guy in town. Cyrus is now in charge. And look at what God does in Cyrus. Not through Cyrus right now, but look at what God does in Cyrus. Look at verse 1 again. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah the prophet might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. What did the Lord do? He stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. What does that mean? Well, it means he directed him to do something. He put it in his heart. He moved him. And we know God does this. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it, what? Wherever he will. So what can engineers do with a stream of water? All the engineers are like, let me tell you, I think about ten things right off the bat. No, an engineer with a stream of water can move it. They can change its direction. It was headed here. They're like, I can make it head here. Well, that's what God does in Cyrus. He moves him to make a decree. Now, before we actually look at this decree, let's just ask, well, why is God moving Cyrus? Why is God doing this? It's very simple. He is sovereignly working in order to fulfill prophecy. God determined that Israel's exile was to last 70 years, and the 70 years is up. So it's time to free Israel. Listen to Jeremiah. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon, that's Nebuchadnezzar, and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord. So God, ahead of time, says, Israel's going to be enslaved for 70 years by Nebuchadnezzar, and after 70 years, I'm going to judge Nebuchadnezzar, and I'm going to judge Nebuchadnezzar through Cyrus. And I'm also going to free through Cyrus. I'm going to judge through Cyrus. I'm going to free through Cyrus. Just look at this incredible passage, what God says that he's going to do through Isaiah, or through Cyrus, excuse me, in the prophet Isaiah. If you want to turn there, you can turn to Isaiah 44. I'm going to read in Isaiah 44, starting in verse 24. This is what God says he's going to do through Cyrus, and this is 150 to 200 years before the events in today's text. Isaiah 44, 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their, foolish, their knowledge foolish. 
who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Look at verse 28. Who says of Cyrus, this is 150 to 200 years before today's text, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped. So God has grasped Cyrus's right hand to subdue nations before him, to loose the belts of king and to open doors before him. The gates may not be closed. He goes on to say more things that he's going to do through Cyrus. And then we get to 4513. I, the Lord, have stirred him, Cyrus. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city, and he shall set my exiles for free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. So why does Cyrus, or why does God stir up Cyrus? Very, very simple. To fulfill his sovereign will. And the result is that Cyrus sets God's people free. Verse 2, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Think about this for just one second. Friends, this is a pagan king, okay? This is not a king who loves, serves, and trusts the God of heaven. (laughs) This is a pagan king decreeing the release of subjects of his kingdom. This is incredible. They are his subjects. And he's like, you know what? I'm feeling generous. Why don't you just head out? That's crazy. This is God's doing. God has stirred up Cyrus. God has directed Cyrus just like he directs all things according to the counsel of his own will. Ephesians 1.11. To free God's people. This teaches us a significant truth. God is sovereign over every political ruler on the planet. Amen. Praise God. Proverbs 21 is true. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. This informs us. This helps us. When it comes to political turmoil in our country, when it comes to political turmoil in the world, are you worried about these things? I am. Are you anxious about these things? Are you fearful about these things? Are you angry about these things? Brothers and sisters, if Proverbs 21 is true, and it is, then there's nothing to fear, and there's nothing to lose your mind in anger over. Yes, the bad guys have their strongholds. Yes, political rulers will rule wickedly at times. But they remain God's characters... In God's cosmic drama, and God will have his way. So here's what we know from Scripture. God is able to turn the hearts of kings such that life becomes harder for God's people. Think Pharaoh. 
And God is able to turn the hearts of kings such that life becomes easier for God's people. Think Cyrus. But either way, God is in control. And either way, God is working his purposes, which are for his glory and for the church's eternal good. So what does that do for you? It, it settles you. It strengthens you. It steadies you for whatever may lie ahead. That's God's intent. So God stirs up Cyrus. And he also stirs up his people. So just throw your eyes on verse 5. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. So, so God stirs up the king to let the people go, and, and he stirs up specific people to go. He stirs up the heads of the fathers' houses. That just means leaders. And he stirs up specifically the heads of the fathers' houses in Judah and Benjamin. And when the kingdom split back in the days of Rehoboam, okay, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, that's when the kingdom split. Well, when the kingdom split into two parts, you had the northern ten tribes, uh, and then you had the southern two tribes. It was Benjamin and Judah that remained under Davidic kingship in Jerusalem. So God stirs these guys up first to go back. He also stirs up the Levites. Levites are important figures in the operation of the temple, so it's key that they go. And then in chapter 2, we just see the specifics of those who God stirred up to go. So in 5, it says he stirred up people to go. Chapter 2 is essentially a, a drill down into who it exactly was that God stirred up to go. So there's, there's leaders in the first two verses. There's, there's laity listed through verse 35. There's priests recorded for us in 36 through 42. There are temple servants, uh, which apparently they serve not in as a significant way as the Levites, but significant nonetheless. Those are in 43 through 54. You've got servants of Solomon in 55 through 58. You've got those who couldn't prove their ancestry in 59 through 63. And then you've got these totals. Uh, look at verse 64 of chapter 2 for me. Look at 64. Chapter 2. The whole assembly together was 42,360. Beside their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736. Their mules were 245. Their camels were 435. And their donkeys were 6,720. So these are the people that God stirred up to return to the land of promise in this second exodus. I say this is a second exodus because this is a second exodus. Uh, just like God's people were enslaved in Egypt and then they were freed to go to the land, that's actually what we've got here. They're enslaved in Babylon and now they're free to return to Jerusalem. And we're going to see important parallels uh, about this here in just a minute. But for now just want you to reflect for just a second. As you look at these totals, this is not all of Jerusalem, or not of all of Israel, excuse me. There are many, many souls who stayed behind. There are many souls who decided they wanted to live out their lives in Babylon. My question to you is, who do you know today that wants to live out their life in Babylon? So throughout Scripture, 
Babylon is representative of the world system that's opposed to God. That's why it's Babylon that's judged in Revelation. So my question for you is, who, who do you know who wants to stay here? This is Babylon, friends, our world. Who do you know who has no interest in Jerusalem above? Who do you know that has no desire to leave the world system and make the trek to the promised land? Is it your friend? Is it your spouse? Is it your child? Is it your father or your mother? No doubt the closer the relation, the more heartache you feel. Oh, pray for them, brothers and sisters. Pray for them that God would do what? That he would stir their heart. Pray that God would move. It is the Spirit who opens the eyes of the heart. It is the Spirit who convicts of sin. It is the Spirit who shows sinners the beauty of Jesus and the glories of the land to come. Pray that God stirs their heart just like he stirred these specific Israelites to go back. Pray that God would stir their heart. He can do that, and he will do that, and he must do that. Would you pray that he would for the person you know who wants to stay in Babylon? Now, back in chapter 1, just throw your eyes there on verse 6. In verses 1 through 4, we've seen God stir up the king. In verse 5, God stirs up the people. And we've got that expanded list in chapter 2. Now, in verse 6... God continues to work his will by providing for the temple. Verse 6. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Now, here's what's going on. The people of Israel are about to leave Babylon, go back to Jerusalem, build the temple. But before they do, the people of Babylon give them their goods. Now, why do they do this? Because of verse 4. This is actually part of Cyrus' decree. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns, there in Babylon, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold and goods and beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that's in Jerusalem. Follow me here. Cyrus not only decrees that Israel can go free, he decrees that the people of Babylon give their goods to the people of Israel in order that the temple might be furnished. This is crazy. And it is yet another significant tie to the first exodus. What is God doing here? He is making sure that Israel has what she needs to rebuild the temple, right? That's what God's doing right here. Make sure Israel's got what she needs to rebuild the temple. So he says, Babylon, people of Babylon, you're going to give up your stuff to Israel, and they're going to go, and they're going to have everything they need to build. All right. Well, God did exactly the same thing in the first Exodus. Turn to Exodus, second book in the Bible. Turn to Exodus, second book of the Bible, chapter 3, verse 20. Genesis, Exodus, chapter 3, verse 20. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he, that's Pharaoh, will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. 
But each woman shall ask her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Now turn to 11.2. Turn to chapter 11.2. Just flip. We don't need the fans. We just need you to turn in your Bibles. 11.2. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver, gold, and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. One more. Turn to 12.35. 12.35. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have whatever they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. I laugh because this is amazing. Like, you're actually reading this like this is nuts. The enemy is plundered so that the house of God can be built in the first exodus. And the enemy of God is plundered so that the house of God can be rebuilt in the second exodus. And all of this is God's sovereign doing. He is moving. He is directing. He is ordaining these events. He promised Abraham six to eight hundred years before the events. He promised him this. Listen to this. This is Genesis 15. He says this. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Genesis fifteen fourteen. I mean, this is unreal. God provides for His temple through plundering the enemies of God. And then look also at what Cyrus does. Turn back to Ezra. Ezra chapter 1 verse 7. Ezra chapter 1 verse 7. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed them in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them. Thirty basins of gold, a thousand basins of silver, Censers, uh, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 11 and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. So, Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem back in 586. He stole all the silver, all the gold, all the goods from the house of God, brought it back to his land. Cyrus conquers him. Cyrus gives it back. Now, let me just ask you a question. Does he give it back just because he's feeling generous? No. He gives it back because this too fulfills prophecy. Jeremiah 27:21 Thus says the Lord God of hosts concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord and the house of the king of Judah in Jerusalem they shall be carried to Babylon and remain there until the day when I visit them declares the Lord then I will bring them back and I will restore them to this place Folks doesn't our God do impossible things 
I mean, not only does he free the people so that they can return, he plunders the enemy and provides for the rebuilding of the temple. I think we need to be reminded that our God does the impossible. We need to be reminded of this. So what situation are you facing that seems impossible? What broken relationship? What financial need? What situation at work that's untenable? What sin has you by the throat? God is a God who works in impossible situations. He moves even the hearts of those who don't love Him and serve Him in order to accomplish His will. This is the God we serve. And one more thing I want you to see before we move on. Not only does God provide for his temple through the people of Babylon and through Cyrus himself, he also moves in the hearts of his own people. So just flip back over to chapter 2 and look at verses 68. Look at verse 68 for just a second of chapter 2. Now, now this is after the totals have all been given of everybody who left Babylon and they came back to Jerusalem. The text in 68 says this. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. So Israel, when she got back to Jerusalem, what did she do? She willingly and freely gave of her possessions for the house of the Lord to be built up. And here again, friends, is a clear tide of the first exodus. So do you know what happened after God redeemed Israel in the exodus? Israel willingly gave of her possessions for the tabernacle to be built. By the way, the temple is just the permanent tabernacle. So in Exodus, the tabernacle was a tent and it moved around because Israel moved around. It's now located permanently in Jerusalem and it's called the temple. But the setup and the structure are the same. But in Exodus, the people gave in order to build the house of the Lord. Here in the second Exodus, the people gave in order to rebuild the house of the Lord. And this makes all the sense in the world to us. Because we do the same thing. We give in response to all that God has done for us. So in God's mercy and grace, he has saved us from our slavery to sin. And in response to that, we do the same thing Israel did. We give. We give our money. We just had a quarterly offering to work towards paying off our mortgage. And we gave $20,000. Why did you do that? Because... All of God has, because of all that God has given to you, you want to give in return. Why are we ahead of our budget by over $20,000 for the year? Because of all that God has given to you, and you recognize that, and you want to give back. But, but we don't just give our money, we give our lives. We give our entire lives. We recognize as Christians that our entire lives are offered up to God, don't we? We say to God, I am yours. I am absolutely yours. You have given me everything, and so everything that I am and everything that I have belongs to you. And I'm just offering it back to you, Lord. We do that, don't we? It's natural. And by the way, 
this just this cuts against the confusion in the world that Christianity is just a bunch of rules, right? Isn't, isn't that kind of the thought, that Christianity is just a bunch of moral and religious obligations and, and hoops to jump through? But that is not true. As Christians, we don't do what we do. We don't give what we give. We don't say no to sin and yes to obedience. We don't do those things as hoops to jump through to please God. We do those things because He loves us. And it's in response to that love. Christianity is not rules, rules, rules. Christianity is love, love, love. And love looks like obedience and following. So that's our text for this morning. God stirs up the king. God stirs up the people. And God provides for his temple. And if you see that, then you've seen this text. But if that's all that you see, you haven't really seen this text as you need to see this text. Because the reality is we shouldn't come away from this text unless we understand that it points us both backward and forward. So how does it point us backward? Well, it points us backward to the first exodus. I've mentioned this several times this morning. I mention it again because it is so important that you grab a hold of the contours of this exegetically. Just think about how tight the contours are. As we come to the book of Exodus, Israel is enslaved to Egypt, right? This is a universal sign for yes. I know you're with me. You're Baptist, so everybody's just very staid. It's okay. Outside the land of promise, under foreign power and control. I'm a Baptist too. It's okay. It's all right. Um, Well, same situation as we come to Ezra. Israel is enslaved in Babylon, outside the land of promise, under foreign power and control. But then think about the promises of God. He promised Abraham what? To deliver Israel after 400 years in Egypt. He promised that in Genesis 15, 14. Your people, your offspring, Israel, are going to be enslaved. They're going to serve. And then 400 years, I'm going to bring them out. Now, as we come to Ezra, we got the exact same thing. The promises of God in Jeremiah, the promises of God in Isaiah. Israel's going to be enslaved for 70 years, but then God's going to bring her out. And in both cases, how does he do it? Well, he orchestrates his will through pagan kings. In Exodus, he frees his people by hardening Pharaoh's heart. In Ezra, he frees his people by stirring Cyrus' heart to decree their release. Also, in both cases, God's people plunder their enemies. In Exodus, the Egyptians give their silver, gold, give their goods. In Ezra, the Babylonians give their silver and gold and give their goods. And of course, it goes without saying, in both, God actually does free his people. So in Exodus, they leave Egypt. They begin their journey to Canaan. In in Ezra, excuse me, they leave Babylon and they begin their journey back to Canaan. And again, in both, God's people give free will offerings to build the temple. So do you see all those similarities? It's just, it's just boom, 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 boom. Why do I point them all out? Is it just because it's a cool coincidence? No. I point them out because the author of Ezra, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, clearly presents this event as a second exodus. Any Israelite reading this text would say, Oh my goodness! God is doing for us now what He did for us then! 
He is delivering us from our captivity from his, by His mighty hand. He's doing it again. It's pointing us backwards. And it's pointing us forwards. How is it pointing us forward? I think you already know, but let me just articulate it for you. It's pointing us forward to the greater exodus inaugurated by Jesus. Take just a minute to think about it and you'll see it. As God intends you to see this, because Scripture tells one story. You know that, right? Scripture tells one story of how He will redeem a people through Jesus. You see, both the Exodus and the second Exodus point us to the ultimate Exodus accomplished by Jesus. How do we know that? Because the reality is we're all enslaved. Whether we live in a free country or not, the Bible says we're slaves to sin. We are not free to love and serve God as we ought because sin has a hold on our hearts. And I think this is one of the most genius lies of the devil. He convinces us that to serve God would be like slavery. It would be oppressive, it's joyless, it's rules, rules, rules. But the truth of the matter is that serving God is freedom. Serving God is freedom from sin. Freedom from the penalty of sin, hell. Freedom from the power of sin, its rule over your life. And eventually from the very presence of sin. This is why God promised to send Jesus. This is why he promised ahead of time to send Jesus to free us because we can't free ourselves. And so he came. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we deserve to die in order to give us freedom from sin and life eternal in the presence of God. This is the ultimate exodus, friends. And this is the exodus that Ezra points us to this morning. And while it's a bit nuanced, I want you to see something about this exodus. The one that Jesus has accomplished. It's a two-stage exodus. It's already begun, but we don't yet experience it in its fullness yet. So theologians say it's been inaugurated. It's begun, but it's not consummated yet. It's not in its fullness. So it's inaugurated like this. Christian, by virtue of your faith in Jesus, you have already been delivered from sin's penalty. That's hell. You have already been delivered from the ultimate consequence of your sin, the penalty of your sin, hell. You will not pay that penalty. Christian, by virtue of your faith in Jesus, you have already been delivered from sin's power. Not only sin's penalty, but sin's power. That's its controlling influence of your life. Does that make sense? The Bible clearly tells us that those who have trusted in Christ have been delivered from sin in those two ways already. The ultimate consequences of your sin, gone. Sin's controlling power over your life, gone. And so you increasingly say no to sin instead of yes, like you did before you were a Christian. But it's not yet consummated. Although sin's power is gone, you increasingly say no, its presence is not yet gone. You do not say no all the time. It's either amen or oh my. Sin is still very real. 
and sin is something that you don't like. But it will be gone soon enough. When Jesus comes back, when he cracks the sky, you will never, ever, 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 ever sin again. Never, ever, ever will you nurse those thoughts that you don't want to nurse. Never, ever, ever will you say those things that you don't want to say. Never, ever, ever will you take or speak or think things that are displeasing to the Lord who loved you and redeemed you. Oh, what a day that'll be. And so what should you do with this? Well, a couple of things. Number one, I just want you to do some business with the Lord and be honest with yourself. If you really haven't been delivered from the power of your sin, then no matter if you say you're a Christian or not, you're not. When we come to Christ, when he frees us from our captivity, he frees us from the controlling power of sin in our lives. Now again, this doesn't mean that sin doesn't sometimes grab us and grab us badly. But friend, you cannot be a Christian and continue to live under the continual domination of sin. And so friend, look at your life And if it's characterized by being dominated by sin, if you don't have control over sin, if you're not growing in your ability to say no, but if you're continuing to be captivated by it, then cry out to Jesus to be saved. Come to Him in true faith and repentance Trust in Him and He will give you the Spirit who will give you power over sin so that you do increasingly say no. Now even as I say that, I know that there are some of you who then have a tender conscience and you're going to be very afraid that I'm telling you you're not a Christian. And I'm not telling you you're not a Christian. Because sin still has an influence in our lives, sometimes terribly. And to you, it's an encouraging word. Because this lets us know that sin will not have the last word. God, who saved his people from the Exodus, who brought his people back to Jerusalem again, has caused Jesus to rise from the grave. And so, what he promises for you, what he began in you, He will complete in you. So be comforted in your battle against sin, providing you are battling. Be comforted that you will be with the Lord Jesus one day. Not because you've done so well, (laughs) but because He has done well and you are in Him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it tells us a story, a unified, rich story that makes sense of the world, that makes sense of our lives. Father, we pray that you would continue to release 
and free captive sinners and continue to sanctify saints that have been set free through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our union by faith in Him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.